But the other thing, uh, I was at a conference this week in Birmingham, and it was during one of the sessions, and um, they, were, they were talking about teams and building great teams, and, and, and it was nothing emotional at all. Like, it was just a very matter-of-fact, like they were going through bullet points. Uh, but it, during the midst of it, I just really was kind of overcome a bit by emotion as I thought about our team here at the table and just how much I love our church and I love the people who help make it possible. On any given Sunday, we have about 40 people um, who volunteer their time and their energy between the three services just to make this service possible, who get here early and open up the doors and turn on the lights and get the kids' room ready and make sure there are nice treats out there for you and hot coffee is made. And then people during the week... um, go and uh, collect food um, for our food market and other people help run um, both our food market here and then our project with loaves and fishes and so many people give their time and their energy through when. I'm just amazed by, by the group of people that God is gathering together and what God is doing through our community. Um, and so I'm just glad to be back. The other thing is I just wanted to honor um, the people who um, spoke while I was gone, Pastor Richard and Pastor Angela and Becky, who's one of our, um, our elders. Um, I've just heard incredible things. In fact, I talked to a couple people recently. Um, I went to the Newcomer's Brunch yesterday, and I talked to a couple people who were talking about how, how great the sermons were at the table. And I just said, thank you very much. I try really hard to be a great preacher. And they're like, no, I've only been here three weeks. I've never heard you preach. So that was, that was a little awkward. Um, but we've been in the middle of the series for the past few weeks um, on the book of Revelation. And particularly, we're zeroing in on this small section where there are seven letters to seven, seven separate churches. And what we're told in the book of Revelation is that this, the words that we are reading in this particular section, the words that we are reading are the revelation of Jesus Christ that these are the words of Jesus to the church. Now the problem is, if you've been around church, or even if you know anything about church, you have probably some really odd ideas about Revelation, right? There's this whole movie series um, called Left Behind with Nicolas Cage, which is just awful. And um, partially because Nicolas Cage was in it, but also because the theology was so bad. I'm sorry, Nicolas Cage fans here. Um, So anyway... uh, we sometimes just skip over the book of Revelation because it's just weird and it uses some weird, um, uses some weird language. Um, it's called apocalyptic literature. It was written actually to be confusing because they didn't want the, the, the powers that be, the Roman Empire, to understand what was being written. And so it's written in a really weird apocalyptic way. Um, but in the midst of these weird writings, um, we find some powerful truths that I believe that God wants to speak to us today in the 21st century. And of all the letters, the one that we're going to look at today is maybe the most biting and the most relevant to us. In most of the letters, there is both praise and woe. Jesus is like, you're doing well here, you could do a little bit better here. Last week, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, it was just all praise. Like, dude, you're doing great. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. But in this letter today that we're going to read, the final letter of the seven, it's all woe. There is no praise. It is just like, in fact, it is is such intense, it is intense visceral language. It feels almost personal. Um, And uh, so as I was studying the passage this week, I, I made a realization, there is a word in here that when I like dug into it, it it exploded this entire passage for me, um, helped me understand it better. 
um, but also helped me understand in a very personal way the love that God has for us. And so um, I want us to look at this message. Um, It's in Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 15. It's going to be on the screen, um, but also if you don't have a Bible or you don't want to carry your Bible with you, there is an incredible Bible app. produced by a church called Life Church. Um, it's just, I think it's just called The Bible. Um, and uh, you can download it. It's been downloaded over a billion times. And, and today we're going to talk for just a moment about jealousy. And, and I bring up the Bible app partially because you should know about the Bible app, but also because every time I go to read the Bible and open this app, I feel a bit of jealousy because the person who created it um, he went to the same university as I went to. It's a very small school. We have a lot of the same friends, but everyone thinks he's such a big deal. And he, like, he gets called, just because his app has been downloaded a billion times, and so he gets called back for commencement, and I don't. So anyway, um, it's still a good app, but every time I open it, I just feel a bit of jealousy. So anyway, um, he's in the New York Times. He's so, one of the top 100 most influential tech leaders. He's not that great. Anyway, um, that's a joke. He's great. He's phenomenal. um, Turn with me. Uh, Actually, we're going to start with verse 14. Um, And to the church in Laodicea, write, write this. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origins of God's creation. I know your works, and you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, look, I know your deeds. And the problem is, is that you are neither hot nor cold. And what's fascinating, he's like, you are neither hot nor cold. And essentially, he says, you nauseate me. You nauseate me. Like, I literally just want, like, you make me want to throw up, which is really harsh language. But, but the word that I want to focus on this morning is, is, is the word that, that we trans, that's translated as hot in this passage. Because the word is, um, I've got I to find it here, make sure I'm getting it right, zetos, zetos um, which is a Greek word. And it, it really should be translated, is generally translated as zealous. So Jesus is saying, look, I would rather that you be zealous for me. But here's where it gets interesting. Because the same exact Greek word that is translated as hot here and that is translated traditionally as zealous, also all throughout the New Testament is translated as jealous. There is a connection between jealousy and being zealous. So how can the same word have two separate meanings? And I think the way that that can happen is that they're ultimately the same thing. Think about it for a moment. What does it mean to be jealous? When you're jealous, you set your love intently on someone or something, and that intense love directed towards something can cause you to act a bit irrational at times. If you've ever been in a relationship that went south, and or you thought it was going south, or whatever it might be, but you have this intense love for another person, and then you are afraid that that love is not being reciprocated, and particularly if you're afraid that love is being directed in another way, you feel jealousy. But what I think is really interesting is not only do you feel jealous, but often, when you're in the thick of it, you feel a, a knot in the pit of your stomach. You feel nauseous 
I really think what's happening here in this passage is, is Jesus is saying, look, I love you so much. I have such intense love that is directed towards you. And when that love isn't reciprocated, when that love doesn't come back, when it comes back lukewarm, like, yeah, you're okay. Because you know this, right? Like, you would rather someone hate you or like be into you. The worst thing is to feel that someone is indifferent towards you. And, and, and Jesus is like, it, he's like, it makes me literally sick to my stomach, nauseous, to think that you are so indifferent to me. If you set your love intently on something, it causes you to direct your energy towards them. But the problem is, and this is where jealousy really goes off the rails, is when you set it intently on your own ego, on your own well-being, on your own reputation. And when that happens, you are constantly jealous of other people who are being more successful than you or having more favor in life than you are, right? Because you have set your love so intently on, on yourself that when others are successful, when others have favor, you're jealous. And in the same way, your love, when it's set intently on another person, can cause you to become jealous of them, and that can be a very unhealthy thing. And which is why Paul often talks about, when Paul uses this word, he often uses it in the negative. I found this great um, definition for what it means to be jealous from Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor in New York City. He says this, to be jealous means to set your love on someone with such intensity that there is an explosion of energy on behalf of that person. If you set your love egocentrically on yourself, then that envy, that, that envy and jealousy is going to come up in some really unhealthy ways, how I feel every time I open my Bible app. But when it is set on another person in a healthy way, you want the best for that person. You want good things for them in life. And what's fascinating is that Jesus is saying, look, I would rather you be out, like I would rather you be an atheist, I would rather you be totally like off the Jesus train, or be all in. I don't want the middle road. And the thing is, if you've, if you've been around church very long, if you've ever been in ministry, if you've ever been a pastor, like you totally get this. The hardest group of people to minister to, the hardest per- group of people to, to preach to, are good church folk. You've heard the stories your whole life. They don't really have much power. Church becomes nothing more than a social club, something you do because, well, that's what good people do. But the power of the gospel never grips you because in your core, the core of who you are, you know that you're a pretty good and decent person. And this is even becomes, and this is really elevated in a city like D.C., where so many of us come here to change the world, we're doing good things with our life, we're drinking good coffee, right? We, it's, we think that life is pretty okay. And it becomes almost impossible when that becomes your, like, the status quo becomes kind of this just, like, humdrum faith, it becomes almost impossible for the, for the gospel to break through. On the other hand, if there is someone who is completely cold to the faith, who wants nothing to do with it, the moment that the power of Jesus' love and the, redemption, the redemptive promise of grace breaks through, it is life transformative. It flips their life upside down. And in fact, they become like sometimes some of the most annoying people you can be around. If you've ever met anyone who just came to faith, you sometimes want to say, just settle down. 
Jesus is okay, but like he's not as great as you're making him out to be, right? Because Jesus has completely transformed the way that they see themselves and the way that they see the world. I, I, my favorite conversations, don't be offended, but like most of you I don't really like talking about faith with. My favorite conversations, because you know all the answers. It's always Jesus. It's always Jesus. And my favorite people, though, is uh, to have conversations with are people who have no faith background. So I was at a wedding in um, Zurich, Switzerland um, last summer and got seated with this guy who's been in a church one time in his entire life. He has no faith background. But there was such a hunger and a zeal and a passion to have spiritual conversations. And as I like explained a bit of like the gospel message, he just like started getting so stoked. And he's like, dude, if that was true, that could be really life transformative. I'm like, I know, that's why I'm a pastor, right? But... But you tell an average person who's been in the church their whole life, and it's just, it just is. It loses its power. And so Jesus says, look, I would rather you be on fire, be zealous, have this intense love directed back towards me, or just be out. Cut the relationship off. You're not doing anyone any favors by just being lukewarm. Because lukewarm people, I believe, are further from the grace of God than people who are cold because they don't see themselves as people in need of God's grace. That's why when we invite you in a moment and a little while to the communion table as we do every week, we always say this is an open table. The only thing that we require is that you see yourself as in need of God's grace because that table and Christ's sacrifice is completely meaningless unless you see yourself as someone in need of redemption, unless you see yourself as a person who needs to receive that gift. And what's fascinating, this is maybe one of the scariest things to me in all of Scripture, is that Jesus rarely talks about hell. And when he does, it's not to people who we would condemn. Right? When he sees the woman who's been caught in adultery for 12 years and he's brought before her to be stoned, Jesus is like, I don't condemn you. The person without sin casts the first stone. But when Jesus talks, when he starts getting intense, he starts talking about hell, he starts talking about you making me nauseous and wanting to spew you out, he's talking to good religious folk who think they have it all together, who think they are not in need of the grace of God. So what's the underlying problem? What causes, what causes us to become lukewarm? What Jesus says here is this. He said in verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You should underline that, right? That is like, that's the crux of this passage. I need nothing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So we actually, some, of the, some cities in the gospel, or some cities in the Bible when we read about them, we don't really know much about that city. Um, but this, particularly city, this particular city, Laodicea, Sita, we know a ton about. But there's three key things that we should know. The first is that it is a financial center. So think New York City or London. Like, it is a financial hub. Tons of, of, of capital runs through the city. The second thing is it's a textile mecca. So there's tons of, like, all the best clothes, all the best garments are being produced there. And the third thing, it's a center of medical innovation particularly an ointment that you would put on someone's eye 
that was having trouble with seeing, that was having trouble with blindness, and this ointment could clear up the problem that they were having. So those are kind of like the three big things, right? It's a financial center. They are wealthy. They're so wealthy that when there is an earthquake that levels the city at one point, the Roman government like comes in and like, okay, we want to uh, declare a federal you know, emergency and we're going to throw some money your way. And this city's like, dude, we got this covered. We, we don't need your help. That's how wealthy they were. And so what's interesting is he says, look, you are poor, blind, and naked. It is the three things they think they have going for them. They think they are really wealthy. They think they actually are known for curing blindness and naked. And they're like known for the best, making the best clothing. And he's like, look, the thing that is your biggest problem is what you think is your greatest strength. Your greatest weakness is the thing that you think is your greatest strength because there's such a self-sufficiency, because you think you can do it all on your own, and as long as you think you can do it with your wealth and with your innovation and with all the other things that you have, you will miss out on the power of the gospel. And you, I see this over and over again. People who are like, their life has fallen apart, they know that they have nothing else to count on, they, they experience God's love and the grace of the gospel in a way that people who have it all put together just simply can't experience it. And so what scares me is that I see a lot of similarities between that city and our own city. Because I think we too are spiritually naked. Spiritually naked essentially a, is a metaphor for being of guilt and shame, right? This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden of Eden, um, there's this moment where they sin, and, and the first thing that happens when they sin is they see themselves for who they really are, and they try to cover themselves on their own, and then they hide in the bushes. The thing that separates them from God is not their sin. Now, you might be able to make that case from another part of Scripture, but in that particular text, in the Garden of Eden text, the thing that separates them from God is not their sin, it is their shame, right? Because God comes looking for them in the cool of the evening. He comes seeking them out, and they hide from Him because of their shame, and then they try to clothe their shame with their own doing. The second thing I think we suffer from is spiritual poverty. It, It is this, we are unable to... It simply means we're impotent to change ourselves. Right? We can't change ourselves. We cannot become a better person simply by gritting our teeth and trying harder. It's just not possible. And the third thing is spiritual blindness. Right? We too suffer from this because, it, and, and that simply means that we just can't see people in situations the way that God would see sees people in situations. And I think the reason is because we're really self-sufficient people. We have it all together. That's why we, so many of you moved to the city because you are, you're an overachiever. And, and, there, and, and even if you're not, you're around people who are, and then you just begin to think you're one of them, right? And so like we all kind of become, we're also self-sufficient. We think we can do it on our own. If we just try a little harder, if we just read a, a few more things, if we just maybe try to pray a bit harder, then we can fix our problem. We don't need anyone's help. We don't need anyone's salvation. And because of that, because we think we have it all together, Jesus' love is not a a miracle for you. Jesus' love is not a miracle. It doesn't electrify you. It doesn't move you to tears when you think about the power of the love that God has for you. Because in your core... You think you're just a pretty good person. 
In fact, most of you are pretty lovable and you know it, right? You think, you know, if God's going to love someone, we're pretty good candidates. I mean, there are really bad people in the world. We see them on the news every night. But that, that belief in our own self-sufficiency and our own goodness causes us to miss the incredible love and the power of the love that God has for us. And I think there is a link between affluence and between accomplishments and being high achievers and spiritual lukewarmness. Um, one of my um, favorite theologians is a social reformer by the name of John Wesley. And at the turn of the 18th century, um, he started this movement called the Methodist. Um, it's loosely related to what you would know as the Methodist church today. But um, this, this group, they were called Methodist. It was actually a derogatory term um, because they were just so freaking methodical. Um, like they had lists and rules and practices for everything. But because of that, what happened is Wesley particularly reached out um, to low-income people, um, the, the working poor who were really being taken advantage of in, in, in London and actually all the areas surrounding London. And, and so he began to work with the, the poorest of the poor, and, and as they begin to define Jesus and begin to, to stop um, some of the substance abuse issues they had, and as they begin to like become part of this very methodical community that really gave them next steps to take in their lives, the Methodists went from like being a, like ridiculously poor to being middle to upper middle class individuals. And some of the final words that John Wesley says before he dies, some of the final things he writes, is how fearful he is for the people he calls the, the Methodist, how fearful he is for them as they become wealthy. He said, because there is a direct connection between your wealth and your spiritual poverty. He said, because two things, first, you don't think you need God anymore, and then he tied these two together. For Wesley, he always tied together love of God and love of people, right? It cannot, you can't love God and hate people. And Wesley said, you stopped loving God and you stopped loving the people that we were originally called to minister to, right? For him, he uses the word poor. You stopped loving the poor. And he says, because of that, you were becoming lukewarm. And I think that our privilege and our success and our brains puts us in spiritual danger, right? Those of you who are smarter than the average person, those of you who have more money in your bank account than your average person, than the average person, you are in more danger of spiritual lukewarmness. And because of our lukewarm nature, we've lost the power of the gospel that's available to us. Because when you have a group of people who are zealous, who have this intense energy and love directed outward, amazing things can happen. The way it always works is God's love comes towards us and then we respond in like, we return that love and as we return that love, other people are welcomed into it. It is always a love, the love of God for us and our love for God always pushes us outward to reach other people. Listen to these words of of, um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in um, the letter to the Birmingham jail. He says this, There was a time when the church was very powerful in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Small in number, they were big in commitment. And I love this line. They were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated. They were like, They were too, like, sold out. You know, they were too infatuated with God to be intimidated. 
Then he says this. That's, that's like the definition of zeal. And he says this. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient, ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity and forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. When I read that passage, I didn't read, I wasn't reading the original Birmingham, uh, the letter to the Birmingham jail. I was reading it in an article and I thought possibly, I had to go, I actually went and read the letter to Birmingham jail or part of it because um, I thought maybe the editor had made a mistake and he like put his own commentary after it because it seemed that it could have been written yesterday. Those final words, listen to this. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Go look at the numbers from like the Pew Forum and Religion or Gallup and they just like, when you look at young people's opinion of the church or young people's engagement with the church, it is just this massive decline that is accelerating every year. King's words could have been written yesterday. If the church does not, I just want to read this last line again. If the church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, which I love too. I mean, this is like the buzzword of the millennial generation, authenticity. King was cool before he, anyway, uh, King was cool. Uh, Forfeit the loyalty of the millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into disgust. There's nothing compelling, there's nothing world-transforming about a lukewarm community of people. Jesus is like, look, if you're not going to be zealous, if you're not going to be on fire, if you're not going to have this incredible love directed towards me that then spills out towards others, just give up. I would much rather you like fold up the church put the chairs up, go home, and lock the doors than to just keep going on in a lukewarm nature because it's impossible to have the transformative power of Christ in a lukewarm context. The gospel requires us to acknowledge our inability to save ourselves and it requires us to realize our dependence on something beyond us. King's basically saying we have to recover our jealousy for God. To be jealous for someone is to set your love so intently on them that there is this explosion of energy in their direction. And without that, without that, we will never sacrifice and we'll never engage in the world-changing mission to which we've been called. So what's the answer? Jesus has a bit of advice. Now because it's in Revelation, it's a bit clouded, but here's what he says. He says, therefore, I counsel, counsel you, or actually a better translation is I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you to keep the, you from the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This whole passage hinges on the, the words that we read, get from me, right? In the beginning, he says, you, you've got to get this from me. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me. You've got to, like, 
this is not something we can do on our own. Right? We are dependent on Christ. But he says, look, if you will come to me, I will give you gold. And, and gold is the best way we can understand it is right status with God. That's best that commentators can figure out what he's saying. I'll give you gold, wealth beyond anything you could ever imagine, right? This is kind of the theme, right? You think you have money where, where rock or moth and rust destroy and, and, and corrupt, right? No, there are treasures beyond that you can never even imagine. Then the second thing he says is this, is I'll give you a white robe. I will give you a new way of being in the world. Right? Paul talks about all the time, taking off the old garment, putting on the new, putting on Christ's love, Christ's transformative power, putting on the beauty and love of Christ. Because the thing is, Jesus knows that we are all trying to clothe our nakedness. Because our great, one of the greatest fears we have in life is being exposed. We're afraid that people will realize that we are not as great as they all think we are. We'll be exposed for being a fraud or not being as great as every, or smart as everyone thinks we are or as put together as people think we are. This is why so many of you work so hard. This is why you care so much about how much money you have. This is why you care about how you dress. This is why you care so much about your resume. This is why you care. This is why you do half the things you do because you, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, are simply trying to clothe yourself to hide the shame. You're afraid that people will see you for who you really are. They will see your fears and insecurities and know what the, the voices in your head are that, that speak lies to you in the dark of night. But Jesus says, look, if your zeal and your focus is all turned on you, it will cause jealousy to rise up inside of you in unhealthy ways and it will destroy you. It will destroy you. Because all of us are covering our nakedness with something, with success, with money, with relationships, with power, but underneath it, we feel weak and helpless and exposed. Because we know that underneath the garments, underneath the things that we are hiding is the real you. Is the you, at least, that you believe is the real you. The you that you are afraid that other people will discover. And Jesus says, look, I will give you a garment that can never be stripped away. That can never be removed. I will give you new life and a new identity and a new way of being. You are a beloved child of God. And that identity can never be stripped away. So how do we move from being lukewarm to being jealous, to being zealous for God? I think we find three things in this passage. The first thing is just to receive it as a gift of grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it, which is my least favorite thing about the entire Christian message and Christian story. I can work harder than a lot of people, and I am better than a lot of people. And the idea that people that I don't like have the same access to God's grace as I do bugs me at times. We're just being real. It bugs me at times. Like, I, don't, I, I want to feel that I somehow can do something better than someone else. But that's not the message. This grace is available to all of us. And acknowledging that our brokenness and our need of grace is the first step. Like seeing ourselves for who we really are, the ways that we hurt people on a daily basis. The funny thing is, the things that we feel shame about, we shouldn't feel shame about, and the things that we feel okay about are actually the things that we're doing to hurt other people, right? We do this all the time in our relationships. I mean, the worst thing about being married, if you're not married, this is just like maybe a, 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 a de-incentive, is when you are married to someone else and they see you before you like brush your teeth and have coffee in the morning, they know the darkest parts of you that you don't even realize, right? They're like, you know you're really hard to get along with. That's a lie. Everyone else loves me, right? Because they know you so well. That's the downside. 
opening yourself up, doing the self-examination. God, where are the places where I don't love others as I should? This is why we confess that we have sinned against you in word, thought, and deed by what we have done and what we have not done. It's not always like this active thing, but how are the ways that we are not loving? Seeing ourselves for who we really are and then throwing ourselves on the grace of God. The second thing, and this is my least favorite. These are all, I don't like any of these. Um, It says this, um, Buy from me gold refined by fire. Essentially, go through gold that is, or buy, like, to get to where you need to be, there will be a refining process, a process of difficulty. Because, and most of you know this, that there's rarely a person who has lived an incredibly charmed life that's not lukewarm. If you find people who their everything in life has always gone their way, they are just overwhelmed with privilege. They always have every door open for them. Often, as a general rule, that person, in my experience, finds it much harder to be zealous in their faith. There's something about going through difficulty, about experiencing difficulty, about experiencing trials that changes us, that makes us more dependent on God. And then thirdly, and this seems so self-evident, but you just got to open yourself up to God's love. Because the problem is, as you begin to go through the self-examination, as you're going through difficult experiences, as you're beginning to like look at yourself and receive this grace, the problem is that sometimes we then begin to not love ourselves or begin to feel unlovable or whatever it might be. And in that moment, that's the time we need to realize how deeply we are loved by God. Jesus, in this passage, um, tells us that we nauseate him. He wants to spew us out, which is incredibly harsh language. But just a little further down, he says, he, those he loves, he rebukes, which is like an old school word for correct. And I never really understood that concept until I had a, a kid. Um, I have a two-year-old, um, Eloise, and it turns out that two-year-olds have a deep desire to kill themselves in lots of different ways. Right, climbing on things they shouldn't climb on, like the like. So anytime she go, the other day we took her to a, a park and there's this slide that was super high up. I mean, I, but I was like, oh, it's okay, we're at the bottom, it's gonna be fine. But there's a bar that goes across the slide that's really high. She grabs that and then like just swinging her whole body like out over, and I was like, no, that's not how this is supposed to work, right? We have to correct her because if I don't, she will literally kill herself. And and then when I do, she throws a fit and she cries, and then everything in me. She looks at me with those big brown eyes and everything in me wants to say, oh, it's okay, honey, you can keep doing it. But I know if she keeps doing it, she's going to kill herself. Right? Jesus says, look, I, I, those I love, I rebuke. And so Jesus is saying, look, I love you deeply, but I want something better for you. I want you to, to choose a different path, a better path. I want you to have life and to have it abundantly, but the choices you are making, the path that you are headed down, is not taking you towards life. Then verse 20, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open it, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. This is such an intimate image. In the ancient world, I mean, in our world today, but particularly then, to share a meal with someone, to invite someone into your home, was an incredibly intimate act. And so here Jesus just gets done saying this, like, really harsh thing, and then he says, 
but you need to know I am at your door and I want to hang with you. I want to rekindle this relationship. I, I want to be with you during the, the dark moments of your life. Like, I just want to be with you. I think one of the hardest things about prayer is, is realizing that prayer isn't just about asking God for things, but it's sometimes just talking to God and sometimes just listening. It is, is being in this intimate space, a space where you can be fully and completely honest because good relationships, and it's taken me, I don't know how many years of marriage to figure this out, but good relationships are based on being honest with each other because as long as you like dance around issues and don't talk to each other about it, they just fester. Like some of us are afraid to let God know about our doubt and about how pissed we are at Him sometimes. What does it look like to sit in that moment and to say, God, I, am, I do not like how life is going and I blame you or whatever it might be, right? He's saying, I'm standing at the door, I am outside your door and I want to hang. I want to be intimate. I want to, I want to have dinner. I want to talk. And he says this, verse 21, and to those who conquer... I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself have conquered and sat down or sit, sat down with my father on his throne. For those of us who, who go through this journey, we are invited, for those of us who are zealous, we are invited to rule with God and God's future kingdom. And this is interesting because it also is picked up on in Genesis, right? It, in Genesis says that we are called to Radah. We are called to be co-creators. We are called to participate with God in God's creation and helping it to become all that God intended it to be. We are called to be co-laborers. This, this love of God and our returning love always pushes us outward. To rule, Jesus doesn't mean that we lord over other people, but instead it is an invitation to service and to sacrifice. It's an invitation to rule the way that Jesus rules, through the towel and the basin, through giving of ourselves for other people. Jesus says, look, you can be clothed because I was stripped naked. You can be wealthy because I was impoverished. You can see because I was blinded. Last week, Pastor Angela said it so well. Um, she said, this letter, this book that we are always afraid of, is ultimately, it's a love letter. It's about how much God loves us. And it's just hidden underneath some really weird analogies and metaphors. But underneath, there's, this, there's a God who says, look, things are not going well. I just need to, we need to have a chat. Things are not going well. But I want so desperately to be in an intimate and a passionate relationship with you. I want the best things for you in life. But we've got to, we've got, this has got to be a make or break moment. We've got to be all in. You need to be out. But ultimately what you need to hear from this passage is that there is a God who loves you more than you could ever possibly ask or imagine that wants the best things for you in life. And for some of you, you've struggled with, with you, like, Pastor Angel said, we know it in our head, but in the core of our being, we struggle with understanding that there's a God who loves us this much. And what we read today is that God loves us so much that when that love is not reciprocated, he literally feels ill. There's a knot in his stomach because he loves us so much. And so this morning as we end, I just really encourage you, particularly those of you who have struggled with the idea, who, who your whole life have felt like you need to achieve to be loved or to be accepted. 
Maybe you felt like you need to do this in your, your home life with your parents, your family. Maybe you feel like you need to do this in your job, right? Because that was the thing that gave you value and worth. Maybe you feel like you need to do that in your relationship with God because the picture of God that you've been given is you do A, B, C, and D, you pray 30 minutes a day, you go to church twice a week, and you go to a community group, and you tithe, then Jesus will love you. That's not the message of the gospel. And so I just, like, God so deeply loves you and wants that love returned, and it is inviting you into an intimate relationship. And so this week, I just ask that you just begin to pray, God, would you reveal your love to me? Would you reveal your love to me? And would you begin, would you begin to rekindle that love, that zeal within my own heart? For some of you, you remember a moment when you were on fire, like you were willing to take on the world and it's gone. For others of you, you never had that. And so wherever it is that you are on the spiritual journey, if you are cold, you are out, just begin to ask that God would begin to, to open some spaces up in your heart. And if you are in a lukewarm space, just say, God, would you please begin to reveal yourself, reveal your love, begin to renew that passion, that fire, so that, I, that we may be people who return that love, and that love begins to spill into all the interactions we have in our lives. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would um, allow these words that were written down so many years ago, allow these words to continue to speak afresh and anew. Would you allow these words to remind us of how much you love us, how desperately you long to be in relationship with us, and would you begin to help us to be people who accept that love and that grace but also be people who respond in like. I pray you just begin to restore our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.